Amen. Well, praise the Lord, and Amen. it's a truly privilege to be here, and I thank John and Helena and the elders here for inviting me and allowing me to come. It's accounted a literal privilege, you know, I don't get to share it in many places, but I do count it a privilege to be able to come of like-minded and kindred brethren. I mean, the spirit here this morning is very similar to our little fellowship back home, and I thank God for that, and I thank God for John's faithfulness and Helena's faithfulness and the leadership and you all, you know, for, for welcoming me and my family this morning. We're going to read from Romans chapter 13 this morning, and this is going to be a two-part message. I'm going to share the second part tonight. Romans chapter 13. And we're just going to read from verses 11 down to verse 14. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through to 14. And this message series is titled, Preparing to Stand in the Last Days. Preparing to Stand in the Last Days. And that knowing the time that it is now, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering or chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Amen. And praise God. I'm just going to pray and just move this down slightly. That's better. Well, Heavenly Father, we just want to commit this time into your hand, Lord. Yes. As many prayers have gone forward this morning, and as the prayer meeting and before church began, Lord, I know that prayers have gone up for this service. And Lord, we're just asking you today, God, we need you, and we need your presence amongst us. Lord, we are living in perilous times and in, in, in difficult times, Father. The end of the world indeed has come upon us. And Father God, we, we need your grace this morning Amen. to equip us, to prepare us, to help us to stand, Father, in the days in which we find ourselves and the days, Lord, which lie ahead. I ask you today, Lord, with all my heart in earnest for your grace and for your spirit, Lord. Help me, Lord God, to deliver the burden that you have placed on my heart this morning. I recognize and acknowledge that unless you come upon me, Father, and unless you guide my thoughts and move my heart and guide my lips, then, Father, I will stand here this morning and will strive in vain, Lord, to bring anything of any good and any worth to my brothers and sisters. And so I'm asking you, Father, that only the glory could go to you because you heard this prayer and you helped your servant and you blessed us all this morning and have brought us, Lord, into a deeper place, Lord, in you. And so I do ask these things now, trusting in faith and believing you this morning and looking to you for your grace, for your favor, for your anointing and your power, Lord. Would you be pleased to magnify your son this morning, that to exalt him and lift him up, Lord, that he may be glorified King of kings and Lord of lords, and that every one of us, Lord, might take our rightful place at the foot of the cross, that he only might be exalted. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Preparing to stand in the last days. Preparing to stand in the last days. Now you don't need me to tell you this morning that we're living in what the Bible describes as the last days. In fact, ever since our Lord rose from the dead and ascended into heaven to the right hand of the Father, the last days have been upon us. Paul, writing to the Corinthian church some 2,000 years ago, warned and admonished the brethren concerning the error of Israel's way. And he wrote as follows, All these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. The ends of the world are come. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. And John, writing shortly afterwards in his first epistle, chapter 2 and verse 18, he says, 
Little children, it is the last time. It is the last time. Now, if 2,000 years have passed by since these words were first penned, since these words were first committed to paper, how much more can it now be said in the day and age in which we find ourselves in this morning, can it be said that we're in the last time? Lift up your eyes and behold and see, are things not exactly as our Lord predicted? Spiritual deception on epidemic proportions within the very ranks of so-called the so-called professing church, and I mean the evangelical church. Turn on the news and what will you see? Is it not what our Lord spoke? Wars, rumors of wars, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, pestilences, earthquakes in diverse places. And when our Lord said that ye shall be hated of all men, of all nations, for my name's sake, he said rightly, as we observe en masse, en masse, the increasing persecution of Christians in every given country on the face of the earth. Then what of Israel? What of that tiny nation, Israel? For nearly 2,000 years, two millennia, they wandered the face of the earth, despised and persecuted. By the end of World War II, European Jewry tinkered on the brink of extinction, with two out of every three Jews being gassed or murdered in Hitler's gas ovens and by his killing squads. Then before the eyes of an onlooking world, 1948, Israel becomes a nation again back in its ancient homeland after nearly 2,000 years being out of it. And since then, millions, not thousands, but millions upon millions of Jews have returned to Israel from every corner of planet Earth in direct fulfillment of Bible prophecy, in direct fulfillment of Bible prophecy, setting the stage for the final countdown to Armageddon and the soon return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why do I say all these things? Well, it's simple. Because if ever there was a time to take heart, to take to heart the words of Paul this morning that we've read in the 13th chapter of the epistle to the Romans, and it's these days that we live in. Paul writes, and that, knowing the time, the time, that now it is high time to awake, to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. If it was near then, how much more nearer is it today, 2,000 years on? If it was close then, the Lord's coming back, how much more closer is it now? And it seems to me that Paul had in mind that there was a purposeful preparation needed on our part to prepare for that great event when the Lord shall rend the heavens and come down and receive to himself his own. And indeed, for that reason, Paul wrote... Knowing the time, knowing the time. Tell me, brothers and sisters, do you know what time and season we are in this morning? 2018, as the years clock on and clock up, the soon return of the Lord draws ever near. Knowing the time. The commentator, Albert Barnes, he comments on this taking time, or knowing the time, sorry. He says, taking a proper estimate of the time and of the fact that it is in regard to us rapidly coming to a close. Rapidly coming to a close. Knowing the time that it is now high time. In Greek, that word high time means the hour. Knowing that it is the hour. The hour for what? Well, Paul tells us. The hour to awake out of sleep. In light of the season that we find ourselves in, Paul cautions the believers to wake up. To wake up out of sleep. For now, present tense, now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. And the coming of the Lord, Paul is saying, draws ever nearer. The words that come to mind as I read this are the words of the late David Wilkerson when he said that be ye ready is no joking matter. Be ye ready, ready for what the coming of the Lord is no joking matter. 
Turn please to Matthew chapter 24. Because this isn't my words this morning. I want to hear you to hear it from the words of the Lord's mouth himself. In Matthew chapter 24, and I'm going to read from verses 32. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 32. I'm going to read all the way down to chapter 25 and verse 13. And this is that great discourse known as the um, Olivet Discourse that Christ gave on the Mount of Olives to his disciples when they asked of him what the sign of his coming would be and at the end of the age. And he cautions them and he takes them through the series of events. And he ends here in these following verses giving a caution to prepare, to prepare. Now learn a parable of the fig tree in verse 32 of Matthew 24. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise when ye shall see all these things, Know that it is near even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass, but my words shall not pass away. And even as I read this verse, I'm reminded in 2 Peter chapter 3, where he warned that scoffers were going to come in the last days, that before the Lord's coming, there was going to come people who would mock and scoff, I just want to read this here before we continue in 2 Peter 3 and verse 3. Knowing this first that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. In other words, they've dropped their guard. These may be professing believers, but they've dropped the guard. And they look up into the heavens and they say, Oh, well, everything's just the same as it has always been. And they walk after their own lusts. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, that sure promise that God gave in the time of Noah that he would not strive with men forever. And God bore patiently with that generation until the flood came. The doors were shut and the waters and the heavens opened and he flooded the whole world, destroying all but eight people. By this same word of promise, we're told here, by this same word, the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day and hour, in verse 36 of Matthew 24, knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Life will be going on as normal. Men will be saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come. In verse 40, then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken, the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one taken, and the other left. People will be going about their daily business then suddenly, like that. The remnant of Christ, those who are his faithful bride, when he comes, shall be caught up. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch... In what period of the night the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready. There's a preparation on our part, believers in Christ this morning, a preparation needed on our part. For in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord has made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. 
faithful mess, a faithful and wise servant. But, and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, Ah, my Lord delays his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, to eat and drink with the drunkards, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looks not for him in an hour that he's not aware of and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Strong language, not my words, the Lord's words written to believers. And he continues with this parable. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise, five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. The wise took oil with them. They were prepared, they were ready. Even for the event that the Lord might tarry, they were ready, they were prepared for that tarrying. And it seems as I read Matthew 24 that there seems to be a tarrying on the part of the Lord. And 2,000 years bears witness to that. The first century church looked to the heavens for his coming. The second century, the third century. And now the 21st century does the same. The Lord tarries. But the same word is, look, in my tarrying, prepare. Be faithful. Be ready. I'm coming back in an hour that you look not for me. And or sorry, I'm coming back and we need to be looking for that hour so that we can be ready to receive him. At midnight, there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, Say, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept, but the five wise virgins were prepared, and when they awoke at the sound of his voice, they'd made preparation to receive him, whilst the foolish had to go off to buy oil. The Lord is teaching us something and telling his church that we need to prepare, that there's a preparation needed on our part to receive the Lord. And this morning, what I want to try to do is tackle this topic in two parts. Preparing to stand in these last days. I want to tackle it in part one, in our vertical relationship between us and God. And part two, this evening, I want to deal with our horizontal relationship towards one another. You see, the two aren't mutually exclusive. The two are very well much connected, as we're going to see. And my relationship with you and your relationship with me affects our relationship with God. And preparation is needed in both areas. Both, as we shall see later on, are of most utmost necessity and are crucial for preparing to stand in the unprecedented days in which we find ourselves which I might add are set to worsen, set to worsen significantly as our Lord's return nears. Now, when our Lord was asked by his disciples, what shall be the sign of your coming and the end of the world in Matthew 24, 3, the first words out of our Lord's mouth was not this or that or the other, but he was specific. He warned explicitly and he said, take heed that no man deceive you. First words out of his mouth, take heed, beware, be cautious that no man deceive you. Paul concurs by the Holy Spirit the same sentiments that our Lord expressed in 1 Timothy 4.1. He explicitly says that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Some within the very fold professing Christ are going to depart, to desert, to turn their backs 
on the face and to walk away, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Paul agrees with the Lord because the Spirit of God inspired Paul to write the epistle. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, Paul speaks about a great falling away, an apostasy in the Greek, where we get our English word apostasy from, to fall away from the face. Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, tells them the same. There's going to come a great falling away first, and then the man of sin is going to be revealed. Indeed, the Spirit of God tells us without a doubt that the last days is going to be characterized by great deception. Great deception. And can we not bear witness that this is the case this morning? I'm not talking about out there in the cults. I'm talking right here in the midst of the evangelical church. Deception is creeping in and seeping in from every seam. And the pastors have lost sight and are losing their way and taking multitudes of Christ's flock with them. Perilous times we find ourselves in. And before moving on, we must start here. Because you see, in the age of McDonald's, Christianity, I call it, where everything is accessible at the click of a button, I've come to find that what much of God's people know about the Scriptures has in fact not been obtained firsthand through personal study of this book, but is the regurgitated words of their favorable Bible teachers. And I want to address this matter first. Because you see, hours upon hours I find are spent watching video after video, and God's people never open a Bible. Never open a Bible. If the man of God says it, then the man of God must be right. But brethren, these are no times to just simply take the word of a quote-unquote man of God. We need to know this book for ourselves. And we need to hold God's minister reverently, but we need to hold them to account to the word of God. And every one of us has that duty, and a duty bound to do so. My dear friends, there's a dear, and there's an urgent need to get back to Bible basics. Back to Bible basics. Back to the systematic study of God's holy word. Take heed, our Lord says later on in Matthew 24, 11, again, three times he warned the disciples of deception. Matthew 24, 11, take heed that no man, no man deceive you. Many false prophets shall rise and deceive many. I want to ask you a question this morning. Tell me this, please. How much of this precious book, the Holy Bible, how much of it, how much of it, have you come to know through spending personal time with God? How much of this precious book have you learned reading before the Lord and waiting upon Him? I'm not talking about how much you know from what you've heard through the grapevine or through your favorite Bible teacher. I'm on about first hand, you sitting down and diligently opening this book and working your way through the Scriptures. How much of this book have you come to learn first hand? God teaching you himself through an open Bible illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Amen. There's an old word that we don't tend to hear much today, and it's the word conviction. The word conviction. And I think, and I like to say this, that it ought to be that if you haven't got conviction for what you believe, then you ought not to believe it at all. That's a challenge this morning. If you do not have conviction about the sins you believe as a Christian, then you ought not to believe them at all. I can't afford to take a man's word for it. I need conviction because, you see, Christ calls us to a rugged cross and he calls us to forsake all and he calls us to walk along a narrow way. And you can't do that based on another's conviction. You need to have your own conviction that is going to set you in good standing in the days ahead. And the only way you're going to do this, friends, is by opening this book and letting the Spirit of God burn its truth into your heart that you can say firsthand, thus saith the Lord, Thus saith the Lord. Another man's convictions cannot be yours. Another man's conviction cannot be yours. And we're living in this age today, I find, where I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos. 
You know, it's no good following these Bible teachers around. We thank God for men of God that would teach us. But brothers and sisters, they're only teaching you the word of God. And after everything is said and done, we need to get into this book to ourselves. You remember those in Berea were more nobler than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And they said that of Paul the Apostle. You know, they didn't just take what he said at face value, but they were diligent to get into the word of God and to know it for themselves. My dear brothers and sisters, I say again, another man's conviction will never set you in good standing for the days that lie ahead. Troublesome times, and I'm not being a scaremonger this morning, but troublesome times face us all. We see the climate changing in this land of ours that used to be a great proponent of truth and scripture, but the tables have turned, and we are being persecuted, and that persecution is going to increase at anyone who would take this word at face value and say, I'm going to live by it. Believe you me, persecution is on its way. Indeed, is already here. And what are you going to do when a man puts a gun to your head and tells you to deny Christ or else? I mean, this is what we're talking about when we're speaking about the last days, persecution. Are you going to die for another man's convictions? Are you you prepared to lay your life because the Bible teacher on, on YouTube told it you? No. You need to have some conviction of your own that you're willing in that day to to put um, rubber to the road because you're convicted of something and you say, well, look, uh, give me strength, God. I can't deny what you've shown me. You have the words of eternal life. And you say that might be too dramatic, but I say, is it? Because this is what our brothers and sisters face daily all across the world. We need to wake up and see that the persecution of Christians in the West is not coming. It's already here. It will begin with the losing of our jobs because we don't tie the line on these, on these quote-unquote, um, you know, these taboo topics, the LGTB and everything. You speak against that, you'll lose your job, and then you'll find that later on you'll be in prison, and perhaps they'll take our children off us because we're willing to hold to this. You need to have conviction, else you're going to flake out in the times that lie ahead. And I'm not talking this morning about some bravado, you know, some some machoism. I'm not talking about that. The Lord's grace is all that we need to get through. But we need conviction. We need conviction to make a stand. And God's grace will do the rest and help us to get through. Faith must be an informed faith or else it is foolishness. And I'm saying this morning that we won't be able to stand without a solid foundation. Faith comes by hearing. You don't just choose to believe in something. You have a reason for why you believe it. And the reason is that the Spirit of God has opened our understanding to see Jesus Christ is Lord. And thus we confess him Lord and we believe in him. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's not a leap in the dark. You don't just choose to believe something. You have a reason for it. And that reason is, has been brought to bear and brought to light by the Spirit of God. But indeed, the Word of God informs our faith. So first of all, we need to get back to Scripture and get grounded in Scripture and know Scripture for ourselves and get something called conviction. Something called conviction. You know, there's some women that were actually in, in the early church. They were thrown off cliffs, children thrown off cliffs. Frail elderly women burnt on stakes. How did they do it? Because they had conviction. They simply said, we can't deny our Lord. I seem to remember that Peter and John said the same when intimidated by that great council. And they said, will you judge whether it's right that we should fear you rather than God? All we can do is speak the things God's told us to speak. And the Spirit of God empowers, and the place was shaken one time they prayed, and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. But listen, I want to say this morning that deception has not only to do with misinformation. Many people today are being deceived because they don't know the Bible. They don't know the Bible. You walk into most churches this morning, and sad reality is that they're biblical illiterates literate when it comes to scripture the very basics you'll say here's a bible turn to me please and show me what you believe from this book and they can't they hardly know the order of the books of the bible 
How are we going to stand when someone from the front with great charisma is telling us all these fanciful things and it seems so right if we have not the measuring standard of this book, knowing it to be able to hold that man to account? We're not going to be able to do it. And so we must ensure that we know this book so it is going to be our measuring rod to test whoever would come and perhaps come with ulterior motives to deceive. But I want to say also that deception has not only to do with misinformation, because the Bible spoke also of another type of deception as well. Please turn to Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33, and I'm going to read from verse 30. Verse 30 of Ezekiel 33. Also thou son of man, the children of thy people still are talking against thee by the wall and in the door of the houses and speak one to another, every one to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what the word, um, hear what is the word that cometh forth from the Lord. And they come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but they will not do it. It's one thing not to know the word of God and to be deceived. It's another altogether when you know the word of God and do nothing about it. This too, my brethren, is deception. Not only not to know the word of God, but to know it and then knowing it to do nothing about it is called self-delusion. The people in Ezekiel's time did exactly that. Come and tell us, man of God, what the word of God says. But after he told them, they liked the sound of it but they had no intention of doing it. And Paul said exactly the same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 4. If we turn there, please, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 1 through to 4. These are all familiar scriptures to us. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 1 to 4. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Brothers and sisters, there is a form of deception that the word of God warns us about, and it comes from the deceptive heart of man. Because you see, when the word of God goes out, it demands a response. You see, Ezekiel was sent to the people, and they were happy to come and listen to him, but they were not happy to do the things that he told them. Because why they had ulterior motives, namely covetousness, and they weren't about to ditch their own agenda in order to comply with God's. And we've got to make a choice. We're in the last days. The word of God goes forth Sunday after Sunday. What are we doing with it? What are we doing with it? Paul said there would come a time when they will no longer want to endure sound doctrine because they're certain bent on going their own way. And it doesn't matter if God Almighty should come down into their very midst and tell them the same things. They're set on going their own way. They will turn away their ears from the truth and will be turned onto fables. Paul warns Timothy, man of God, stand firm and preach the word of God. And nothing much has changed because in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2, as it is in these days, it was the same in Israel's. We read, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2. And so I ask this morning, not only do you know the word of God, but I ask also this, 
Are you a hearer of the word only, or are you a doer also? Because this is going to be imperative in the times in which we live, that we take seriously this book, so much so that we're willing to bow the knee to its dictates, we're willing to turn aside to its truths, and we're willing to sacrifice whatever it is that Almighty God should show us from this word in our lives that is unpleasing to him, that we say, yes, Lord, you are Lord, and I'm going to not only be a hearer of the word only and walk out of the church exactly the same, but I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to namely obey. Obey the word of God. Be ye doers of the word, James writes, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. James chapter 1 and verses 22. Tell me this, how much of what you hear do you prepare your heart to receive? How many walked into this church this morning saying, God, if there's things in my life that you're unhappy with and the word of God should lay it bare this morning, Lord, you have my obedience. This is what is going to be required in these last days. It's not time for fun and games. Being a hearer only and full of Bible knowledge, but we do nothing with the knowledge. Deception is bad enough, but self-deception, James tells us here, of a form of deception which is self-inflicted. You say how? When we hear the word of God and do nothing at all about it, and yet think that because we've heard it, we have the blessing that only comes through obedience. And there's multitudes of evangelicals up and down the country hopping from conference to conference, Bible prophecy to Israel and all the rest of it. And I can tell you inside out what this book means, but they're living in sin. And they're not prepared to do anything about it, but they have a head full of knowledge. This will never do, brothers and sisters. James tells us that if we're not prepared to be a doer, and if we're only going to be hearers, then we deceive. We deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves. Being not a forgetful hearer, James writes, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. James 1.25. I don't know about you, but every single knee, and I've purposed in my heart that mine is going to be included, must bow to this book. Truth is unmovable, brothers and sisters. It's like a concrete post. You can't move the thing. You can try if you want and come against it, and you can try if you want to think you're okay by dodging around it, but you're just deceiving yourselves. For 2,000 years, the New Testament has been penned. 1,500 years previously, Moses began to write. And ever since then, this book holds true and continues to hold true. And we've got a purpose in our hearts in the last times that we're living in, whether we're going to take God seriously and believe what is written and obey it, or whether we're going to play games with the Lord, we need to decide. So not only firstly in terms of preparing for the last days do we need to know the scriptures for ourselves and have conviction upon it so as not to be deceived, but we secondly also so as not to be deceived, we need to make sure that we are obeying the scriptures as God shines light upon them and that we're not just simply hearing the things and knowing what we need to do but doing nothing about it. I meet Christians like this all the time. They're in sin. They know what they're doing is wrong and they say, but, you know, it's just how it is. Brothers and sisters, it's not just how it is. The word of God exhorts us to repent, to get right. Today is the day of salvation. And all that separates them really between them and getting right with God is that they've just got to let go and come to the cross and forsake that thing they might love and call on the Lord. This is what's required and obey him. And so having established the need for us to be grounded in the word of God doctrinally and to be doers and not hearers, only deceiving ourselves, the next thing that I want to speak to you about this morning in terms of preparing for these last times the next thing that I want to talk to you about is this. If we're going to stand in these troublesome and deceptive days, we need as much light as we can possibly get. And I'll explain what I mean by that. We need as much light as we can possibly get. 
Brothers and sisters, this is no time to reside in the dark, to reside in the shade. We need to step out into the light and allow the office of the Holy Spirit who brings conviction to our hearts to search our hearts, to search our lives, to search our motive and say, Lord, where do I really stand with you? We need to step into the light and allow the Spirit of the living God to shed his searching rays upon us. Personal holiness in these last days is not optional, it's indispensable. It's absolutely non-negotiable and necessary. Personal holiness, personal holiness. What does the psalmist cry out in Psalm 139 and verses 22 and 23? Search me, O God. Search me. Search me, O God. The psalmist was not dodging the light. He brought himself into the full ray of God's conviction and he said, search me, penetrate me, examine me intimately, Lord, and know my heart. Try me, test me, and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Oh, brothers and sisters, our hearts are desperately deceitful, desperately deceitful. Come on, be honest with yourself. You know, we'll wiggle and we'll worm our way out of anything if we can. We're Jacob's through and through. But when we're honest with God and we say, Lord, search my heart. I don't want to play games. I need to know, Lord, where I really stand with you. The psalmist David did it. I'm not talking about being an introspective, you know, or an introvert. But I'm saying to get into the light of conviction and allow God to run the sword of his word through our hearts. It's so desperately needed, so desperately needed, because there are those who like to fancy that Calvary somehow covers it all like a big, big blanket. But as the late Duncan Campbell said so frequently, Calvary cannot cover what we're not willing to uncover. The secret sins that we're hiding away from God on, how can Calvary just cover it all? No, what does the scripture say? If we confess our sins, if we agree with God and say, Lord, I've been found out, I'm at odds with you, I'm at odds with your word, and the searching spotlight of conviction has been upon my heart heavy for the last month, and I'm stopping from this day running from you, Lord, and I'm going to get honest, I'm the man, Lord. Forgive me. Have mercy on me, Lord. To that man, his sins are forgiven. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. And the, the Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13, Solomon warns us, He that covers his sin... He that plays the fool with God, as though God doesn't know. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. There's an uncovering on our part. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is ever faithful to forgive you. I don't care what sin it is this morning and how ruined your life might be. The Lord in one moment can wipe the whole slate clean and restore you. He is a faithful God. But there's one thing that he can't do, and that's to force a confession from you. You must freely confess. It's called humility. It's called getting under conviction and being broken in the presence of God and saying, God, I'm the man. While David played the fool with God and ran from this place to this place, though he'd murdered Uriah the Hittite and he'd taken his wife Bathsheba, he was a man under conviction. And he says in some of the Psalms that he couldn't sleep. He's, he, it was like the world was like, um, um, uh, you know, it, it, I can't remember exactly what it was. <laughs> but, you know, it's like there was a brokenness within him, you know, um, a burning within him. His bones ached within him. But when Nathan came and pointed that finger, he was free. You're the man. And at that moment, David got right with the Lord. He that covers his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them. Notice not just to agree with God and confess, but you're willing to forsake them. And you see, this is why many will not confess. They keep it down in here, things they know they're doing in their lives.
wives and is wrong, just plain wrong, and they hide it down in here because to confess it means now it's in the open and I'm going to need to do something about it. So we'll just forget it's there and pretend the whole thing goes away. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't go away. You're going to get more miserable. You're going to get more further from the Lord until you confess what God already knows and get right with him and forsake it. The peace of the Lord is like nothing, and we should covet it more than anything in these last days. And so I ask you this morning, how much light do you really want? How much light do you really want? Do you really want? Because there are some that avoid light like the plague, because as I said, they'd rather remain in their sins And others choose to just reside among the leafy banks where the sun hardly penetrates. And I want to say such, my friends, are self-deluded. And unless they get into the light, they shall fall away. You know, there's some churches, you're never going to hear a message on sin. You can go there and you can stay there for a year. It's going to be Bible prophecy. It's going to be everything under the sun. But they're not going to touch sin because to touch sin means they're going to lose half their congregation and they're not willing to go there. Brothers and sisters, Paul told Timothy, preach the word. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine because there's going to come a time when people are not going to have a stomach for truth. And so we need to put ourselves in a place where we come and even though the convicting work of God is painful, well, it's good for us. It's good for us. Praise the Lord. And I know that at this local church, you know, that the word of God is preached faithfully and sin is exposed and we're the better for it. Turn please to John chapter 3 and verse 19. John chapter 3 and verse 19. This is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. And I'm wondering this morning if God perhaps is not tearing off some of our man-made coverings this morning, that we might get thoroughly honest with God at where we're at this morning, where we're really at. And would to God that there would be a few Nathaniels in our midst, of whom it could be said, Behold an Israelite in whom is no guile. In John chapter 1 and verse 47. Nathaniel was a man who was thoroughly honest with God, honest at where they really were with the Lord. And God is bringing some of us this morning to a place of decision, to a place of decision. If I had not come, the Lord said and spoken unto them, they had had not sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. John 15 and verse 22. And God is saying loud to us and clear this morning, what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? What fellowship and what communion hath light with darkness? And the Lord says clear and simple, come out from among them and be separate. Personal holiness is going to be paramount in the times in which we live. That we're going to give ourselves to be children of light in the midst of darkness. I'm not saying we're not going to stumble. I'm not saying we're not going to fall. But we're honest people striving to walk in the light. And when the Spirit of God convicts us, Lord, we're not going to play death. But we're going to say, Lord, that conviction has just ripped the cover off what I'm hiding. And I confess I'm the man, Lord. I have this sin in my life and that sin in my life. And you're calling me down to make a decision this morning. What am I going to do? These are the people that in the last days are going to walk in integrity. Nathaniel's, Nathaniel's, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. 
2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 14 and verses 17 through to 18. Could we turn to please to Romans chapter 13? This is where I began this morning, Romans chapter 13 and verse 11 through to 14. That knowing the time that it now is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly, walking in the light as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Personal holiness, brothers and sisters, is paramount. We need to be a people that are keeping ourselves unspotted from this world. And there's two things that I see just taking out the church at present. Number one, false doctrine. Number two, sin. These two things we should fear like the plague. And if we fear God more, then that covers the whole thing. To fear God. To fear God. My brother and sister, we're told today that the night is far spent. The day is at hand. It's time for us to awake out of sleep, awake out of darkness. You remember before we came to Christ what we'd get up to in the dark? I mean, we couldn't wait for the sun to go down so we could continue and, and commit all the sins under the sun. But as a Christian, to still go on like that? Why no? We're called now to walk into the light, to be children of the day, to put on the armor of light, to shun and to flee from carnality and sin. And there's particular sins in particular that are mentioned here. Rioting, drunkenness, chambering and wantonness. This speaks about sexual immorality. And I don't know about you, but I'm hearing more and more and more of scandal after scandal of Christians getting caught up in the area of sexual immorality, pornography, the amount of young men that are hooked on this thing as Christians, and they come to church and perhaps are even found in this meeting today, but you're going to go out of those doors and you're going to continue to look at pornography. You can't do that, brother and sister. We need to forsake these sins. These are things that are done in the dark. And we need to flee them. You know they're wrong. The word of God convicts you. And God is calling you to a place of decision this morning to forsake that thing. We need to keep ourselves clean, pure, holy, chaste unto the Lord and for his coming. Chambering and wantonness, strife and envy. We're told to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make not provision for the flesh. I've shared this before, but I'll say it again. That when Christ died on the cross, he did more than just simply shed his blood. That you might be forgiven of sins. Thank God for that. But you read Romans chapter 6, 7 and 8. And we see that he did something else. That when Christ died on the cross, we died too, too with him. He disarmed, he stripped the power of sin. And if any man be in Christ, we're told, he's now a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If we sin, John says, not when, but if, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But we're exhorted now to rise up as a new man in Christ. And we're not saying we're not going to be tempted, but what we are saying then is a Christian, God has given me all the means of grace that I need to live holy. And I don't have to just fall into sin. And I don't have to get defiled with all the things that defile the world. That there's a power in Christ to keep me in the midst of this perverse and wicked generation that I might stand forth and shine as lights. This is what Christ has wrought for us on Calvary. We're dead with him, we're risen with him in newness of life. And Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and don't allow, make provision, don't make provision for the flesh, for the carnal lusts of the carnal man, that you should be a slave to it and fulfill its desires. My final point then, as it relates to preparing to stand in these last days, 
has to do with the condition of our spiritual, devotional life to God in the area of prayer. In the area of prayer. And as you're going to see, I'm not talking about some mechanical, ritualistic list of 20 points that I can whisk through. And I've done my bit for the day. Brothers and sisters, prayer is God's safety mechanism. Prayer is the means by which God has given his people that we might be preserved in these last days. As it was at the close of our Lord's earthly life, so it will be at the close of this age. Please turn to Matthew chapter 26. This is the last passage we're going to turn to this morning. Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to read from verses 36 to 44. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 36 through to 44. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then he said to them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep. And saith unto Peter, what, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O oh my father, if this, cup, um, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. In verse 40, he, find, he found them asleep. The great hour of trial had come upon our Lord. He knew the cross he was going to have to bear in the morrow. And there he labors in Gethsemane as he wrestles with his father. Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. The greatest trial and the greatest hour of his life had come upon him as he knew that he was going to a cross to give himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And he wrestled through with the Father. His disciples, he found them asleep. And in Luke's account, in Luke, um, I've written it down here, in Luke chapter 22 and verse 45, it says that he found the disciples sleeping for sorrow. For sorrow. The hour had come so greatly upon them that because of sorrow, and you know what it's like when a particular trial comes into your life, the sorrow that comes with it. I know for me sometimes in the past, real shaking things, you just want to sleep. There's just a weakness that comes upon you and a heaviness, you just want to sleep. It's too much. And the disciples in this great hour of testing were found sleeping, but our Lord was found doing what? Praying. And he wasn't reeling off a few little prayers here and now I mean he was wrestling with the Father. Luke tells us that his sweat was like, as it were, drops of blood falling to the ground. Our Lord wrestled through in prayer. And I want to submit that in the last days, if we are going to stand, we need to be a praying people. And we need to learn to pray now while the clouds are overcast before they start to thunder and lightning and you're not going to have time to find yourself in prayer. We need to practice the art of praying now, the communion with the Lord and talking through him now about the things that we're going through. The world has many escapes, the bottle, drugs, drink and all the rest of it. But as Christians, our escape, the prayer closet, the prayer closet, where life gets too difficult and I feel the pressing burden of the day, to my knees I go to commune with my Lord and I rise up from it strengthened, empowered, because this is what prayer is. We can wrestle through with God until we've wrestled through and then we set ourselves, our focus to Calvary and we're off. We're off. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Prayer. Things are set to worsen. 
Listen to what our Lord says in verses 40 and 41. Because he uses this example to teach them. He cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep and saith unto Peter, What could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Even in this great trial, our Lord found time to teach his disciples a lesson. Watch and pray. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You remember when the bridegroom tarried? We read it in Matthew 25. What happened? They all slept. All the virgins slumbered and slept. If the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have done what? He would have watched instead of sleeping. He would have watched. He would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Hear the warning of Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober. It means to be of a sound mind and watch. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. The end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. This Greek word watch here speaks about, it speaks here about abstaining from wine so as not to fall asleep. You know, it speaks about an alertness. It speaks about not allowing our minds to be drunk and contaminated with the pollution of this spirit of this world. They live for consumerism. Their eyes are blinded. And as Christians, we're to be a watching people. We're not just to get sucked up with the whole season and the timings that we live in. We're to be a distinct people that are sober-minded. We've got clear vision. Watch unto prayer. Watch, keep awake, and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's watching and praying. Tell me, brother and sister, watching and praying, what is the condition of your prayer life? What is the condition of your prayer? I don't say any of these things to beat people over the head. I don't say any of these things because somehow we're more spiritual if we pray an hour a day. We can pray an hour a day and it means absolutely nothing. I'm on about prayer, watching and praying where we wrestle through with God and we, we commune with God as friend to friend. We talk to God about the deep issues of our heart and the worrying things that we see happening around us. And we pray for our families and we pray for those that we know. Prayer. Most of what the Lord reveals to my heart, of course, is when I open this book. But I commune with him in prayer, brethren. And it's not audible voices I hear, but I tell you, all this word is just sorted out in prayer. And the Lord just brings things into your spirit that you're just like, yes, Lord, in prayer. Prayer. And if we're going to stand in these last days, we need a prayer life, brother and sister. We need a prayer life. And we need to start somewhere. We need to start somewhere. I'm wondering this morning if perhaps some of us have neglected the prayer closet and we haven't been there for some time. I'm encouraging you this morning. God is saying to us, get back in the closet. We need to be a praying people and joining that with a watching people. As we see the signs coming to pass, we need to be in prayer. As we see things worsening, we need to be in prayer. And I know in my own personal life, the Lord is dealing me with this matter and allowing me to increasingly set more time aside. And I don't say that to boast, but I say that simply because the Lord is saying to my spirit, there's times coming that you're not going to get through unless you are a praying Christian. You need to pray. It's in prayer where we build up our strength. We build up our spiritual stamina. And there's times when you and I are going to get severely disappointed, knocked off our feet, the wind knocked out of us. But those who know the prayer closet will crawl to that place and get with God, back to that familiar place, and the Lord will heal, and the Lord will deliver, and the Lord will build up, and the Lord will encourage. So many times I'm encouraged in the prayer closet. I go into it discouraged. I come out of it encouraged. 
So many things bantering around our mind all day, the world and the corruption, but just to get on a beaten track somewhere and just to walk with God and talk to him. And you come back revived, refreshed, everything's put in its perspective, watching and praying. Are you disciplining the flesh in this area? As one looks back at the history of the church, one sees that the church began in prayer in Acts 1.14. It was sustained in prayer in Acts 2.42, and it overcame in prayer in Acts 4.24. And yet, as we see the end of the ages at hand, the church of Jesus Christ in the Western Hemisphere has forsaken the prayer meeting and is sleepwalking drunk with the spirit of this world unto destruction. I believe that to the degree that a church is a praying church is to the degree that it's going to be kept from the hour of temptation. It's going to be a church that are awake and a church that is sober and a church that's hearing from God and a church that's prepared. And as we see times getting increasingly worse, what has happened? The church meeting has been abandoned. Who wants to go to a prayer meeting? with flashing lights and all the smoke machines, that's far more and more entertaining. But to get on our knees and pray, it's boring. And thus the prayer meeting for many in the church has ceased. But I thank God here that the prayer meeting is central. I know um, from Brother John, you know, the, you've been having a month of prayer, you know, because you sense your need for God. The humble people pray. The proud people say, ah, oh, well, I don't need prayer. I'll get through it on my own. But I'm telling you, you won't. We need God. Every one of us need the Lord. And so I exhort you, watch and pray. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving, Colossians 4.2. And so I ask in finishing this morning, will we not set meaningful time aside to seek the Lord in prayer so as to be found watching? Will we not make time, and as God even leads us, and he will, also make time for prayer and fasting also. These are things that God has put in his word to keep his people. The early church prayed. It prayed. It had much tribulation, and it drove them to prayer. And so I've said these things this morning. Firstly, that we might know the word of God. Secondly, that we might obey the word of God. Thirdly, that we might get into the light and deal with Whatever God is convicting us about personal holiness. And fourthly, preparing to stand in these last days, watching and praying. Watching and praying. And everything that I've said this morning, I don't mean that somehow we're going to do it in our own strength. As I've said, the Lord's grace we absolutely need. We need. But there's things that we can do on our part things that we, God has given to us to do that will set us in good standing in the days ahead. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Well, Father, I just thank you, Lord. And I know, Father, that you gave me um, the things to share this morning with my brothers and sisters here at Court Farm. I do pray, Lord, that perhaps you've spoken to some this morning. And God, you've convicted others this morning. And some, Lord, perhaps can't wait till the end of this service to get alone with you, Lord, and put the things right that you've brought to light this morning. And I thank you that you do all of this because you are a loving, gracious God. And you want to prepare us for the times in which we are living in, Father, so that we will not be taken off God and swept away, Lord, with the spirit of this age. Please keep my brothers and sisters here that there might be lights burning, Father, in the midst of a dark world. Children of light, in whom your hand of blessing is upon. And so I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.